really been enjoying trying to go bear hunting and deer hunting and just been enjoying this new thing. So I've got a story for you to open up the sermon, the message this morning, and then we'll get into scripture. A good friend of mine from this church, a farmer, called me this week. He's actually called me a few times in the past few weeks. And the call went something like this. He called me and said, Pastor Patrick, I've got a big black bear in front of my chopper. I'm out in the field, and you just need to get out here and shoot this for me. So everybody's looking around the congregation wondering who this man is. You may already know. But a good friend of mine, that's all I'm saying. So what did I do? I've already declined a couple times because I've been so busy in the office or in hospital visits or other places around the community. But this time I just knew, okay, I got to get out there. And I, I have yet to be in one of these choppers to see what this is all about, this big manly piece of machinery, right? Well, of course, what do I do? An Ohioan, a wannabe hunter, I gather up all my gear, which what that means is I've got my AR-style hunting rifle on one arm. I've got my compound bow on the other one because you got to be ready. You know, you could see a bear, but you could also see a deer, and then I got my hunting backpack of supplies on my back with about eight different knives and other gear. Of course, that's my just-in-case clause. I describe this as just in case I get an animal and I need those knives, or just in case I get lost since I'm a wannabe hunter and I need to go into survival mode. I might need eight knives, right? The saying is one knife is no knives, two is one, Three is two, and so on. You can never have too many knives, because what if you lose them? What if they break? So I get out, out here in the field. I, I wait for the farmers to have lunch, because farming wives are really awesome. They deliver the food out to the field. And the farmers get out of their tractor. They eat lunch together. So I waited while they ate lunch. And then I got up in the, in the chopper with them, and we started just riding around the field. Now, about 30 minutes, an hour goes by, I, I learn a lot about farming and a lot about his family, a lot about the community, the youth group, the past of this church. But the one thing I didn't learn much about was black bears, because he must have ran off in the woods while the farmers were eating lunch. So about 30 minutes go by, and we're driving around, and finally I'm seeing these deer jumping out of the field, out of the cornfield, as he's, as he's well, I'm going to say plowing it down, but as he's chopping it down. So what, what happens? My good friend Scott Culver, I mean my good friend here, he drops me off on the other side of the field. And he said, okay, I'm going to drop you off here, and I'm going to just keep working this field in your direction and try and scare them out to you, scare the deer out. Now, as I'm now dropped off and I'm kind of pacing the field as he's, as he's chopping down to stay with him in case he scares that deer out, I'm already recognizing this is a good friend. Because that's taken double the amount of time for him to now chop the corn down as he keeps having to back up his machinery to keep going the same direction instead of just doing a circle around the field. But he gets all the way done with the crop to now there's only about 10 feet left of, of crop up. And I realize no deer is getting scared out of there. Maybe he already got scared out before I got dropped off. So I look behind me in the woods... And don't you know, there he is. The deer is probably 30 yards behind me, and I can see him. Now, I'm getting pretty excited, but let me preface this, remind you, I grew up in Ohio. I, I grew up shooting, 
guns and bow, but never had a real animal and never in the woods. So I started this story out thinking it sounded kind of manly, but really it's kind of embarrassing as you hear it. So here it is. This deer had probably about, there was this little area of corn right in front of the woods that was still up. So I had about 15 yards of corn up in between me and the deer, and then about 15 yards of woods up. But me being excited, seeing my first deer, I pull back, I line up my shot, look through my peep shot, my peephole, and I'm thinking, oh, I can get that. I can shoot through the corn. So I let go. I would love to say I hit that deer. But that deer went running and running and running, and my arrow, I have no idea where it went. Apparently, when you are shooting a bow and arrow through the woods, through cornfields, it can get deflected really easily just off a little branch or a little twig or a little tassel of corn. And I had never done this. I've shot at targets all my life, right? So I go looking for this arrow, and I also walk the whole woods looking for the deer, thinking, maybe I wounded it. I mean, I doubt it, because <laughs> he ran off pretty fast, but maybe I did. I don't find the deer anywhere. I'm not finding my arrow anywhere, and I'm starting to get a little frustrated, because these things aren't cheap. Well, about this time, my good friend, he calls me up on the two-way radio he gave me to stay in contact. He says, Patrick, you need to hurry up and find your arrow, because there's more deer up here now. So, of course, I ditch my arrow, and I think, okay, it's gone. And I, I walk up to the other side of the field where he's at now. Now, my good buddy, he's a wise man. And he tells me, just wait here on the edge of the field, because I scared him out, but they'll come back to eat once my machinery gets to the other side, gets away from them. So, like a wise pastor that I am, a man, I wait there for all of about two minutes, and then I look in the woods, I'm like, there he is! So I don't wait. <laughs> I, I look in the woods, I kind of walk five feet in, I think, I can see him. I mean, he's only like 20 yards. He's kind of standing up the hilltop here. Now this time I'm a little more cautious as I can see that there's no way I got a shot. There's too many tree branches in the way. I mean, I'm not in a tree stand where I have a, a clear shooting um, lane. We're kind of stalking the deer, so there's woods. So what do I do? I think, well, maybe if I get on my knees, I can see through. So sure enough, I'm looking on my knees. I think, I can see him. I got a shot. So I pull back. Yeah, I can do this. You'd think I would have learned the first time. I let go, and pow! My arrow shatters into pieces. Apparently, there was some little branch or something. I don't, I don't even know where it went. But apparently, there was some little branch that deflected it. And it hit something and just shattered into pieces. So I learned my lesson the hard way that when you're hunting with a bow, you need to have a clear shot. You need to really think through your shot, think through what you're doing and have a purpose. You can't just fire off wildly. Now, why did I tell you all of this? Besides to sound manly, but then ultimately just to kind of embarrass myself because now nobody's going to trust me around a bow, right? I, can, I, I need to say, if you put a target in front of me at 40 yards, I can hit that bullseye, I promise you. And now I know that if I'm out hunting, I need to wait till I have a good shot. I'll say I saw about six deer the next day when I was walking out on some other hunting property, and they were probably about 50, 60 yards out. And as much as I wanted to try and shoot, I didn't, because I learned my lesson to wait. 
But here's the thing. I think we are like these arrows. We're easily deflected when not shot with careful planning and purpose. We must be awakened to God and his ways, to be led to our mark, the bullseye, by being alive in Christ and empowered by his spirit. So we're going to get into the message today in Ephesians chapter 2. Please open to that. And I'll give a little explanation about this slide right here. As you look, I'm actually going to go back one, maybe. There we go. When I first started planning this sermon, I just loved this title, Waking the Dead. And if you notice, it's actually kind of hard to see at the bottom. It was one single man walking amongst this whole city of what would be considered the dead people, the people who are not alive in Christ. And this was more focused on you, the congregation. How can we be alive in Christ to reach all these people? But now what I end up changing it to be, as the Spirit led me, is to talk more about ourselves. Now, naturally, when we're alive in Christ, we're going to start reaching those other people. So we're going to move into this. Let's read Ephesians 2 and I'll ask you, if you have somebody beside you who's fallen asleep, I want you to give them a light slap on the shoulder to wake them up because that just might be God trying to, that just might be Satan trying to keep them away from God's word today. So Ephesians 2, I'll go and read and you can stay seated today. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. As we read this scripture today, I think there's two aspects to how life is described that you need to notice. The before Christ and the afterlife. Or more detailedly, we see the dead and the alive. In verse 1, it plainly says, you were dead. You were dead and we followed the ways of the world, the ways of Satan, the prince of darkness. But then as we read on to verse 4, we see, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive in Christ. So in a world which needs to see the life that we have, are we showing it? Are we showing it to this whole city, this whole world, which is dead, dead to Christ? Are we showing them how we must be alive, or do we look like some type of zombies, like an extra on the Walking Dead TV show that's so popular today? Just walk around day by day, acting as if we have no hope, acting as if there's no future plan to our lives, acting like we have no purpose. 
Because here's the thing, guys. God can change your life. God can give you life. God can use you in your life today. And here's my one major point for today that I want you to write down. Write down somewhere. Even if you're not taking notes, if you have a pen in front of you, a piece of paper, write this down. God will... God will give you life, and he will awaken the spirit inside of you to do great things. Now, I'm going to leave that slide up there for the rest of the sermon today. So you've got plenty of time to write it down or to memorize it, to look at it. But I really want that to stick with you today. God will give you life, and he will awaken the spirit inside of you to do great things. But in order for him to do that, we have to make a choice. We have to make the choice to be awakened by Christ to profess with our mouth that he is Lord and Savior over our lives. God is in the business of waking the dead, and he wants you and everyone to be alive in him. Now, we know from his word that not everybody will be alive in him. Not everybody will be destined to heaven, destined to relationship with him. But still, step one is this. Do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior over your life? Because step one is the fact that I don't want to ever assume that just everybody in here or everybody out there is a believer in Jesus Christ. I don't want to assume that everybody knows him personally as their Lord and Savior because, as we've talked before, even Satan and his demons, the evil spiritual forces of the world, even them believe in Christ. So it's more than that. It's not just about believing. It's about repenting. It's about trusting God. And following him, following Jesus. He wants us to be living like him and more like him each and every single day. So we must wake up. Step two is this, live. Live like Christ. Be awakened from death and be alive in him. No longer living like dead zombies of Satan walking around with no purpose, with no hope. Because we should be awakened. We should be excited to be living the way we're living. Because we know we have the answer to a happy life. We know that we have the answer to a future life. Our best life isn't ever going to be now because our best life is going to be with Jesus, with God, and serving him, glorifying him, worshiping him for all of eternity. So we must no longer be living like an arrow being deflected in all directions. We must be living like an arrow that knows where it's going, that's purpose, that's plan, that sinks through the greater picture not so focused on the one part of the target that we forget all the things out in the world to deflect it. We need to know where we're going. God has the power to awaken the life inside anyone. Maybe this is you. Maybe today you're feeling kind of dead inside. Maybe you don't know how to have the joy that you need. Maybe you, you just don't feel like there's hope. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's a neighbor. Maybe it's a family member or relative. I want to tell you today, God has the power to awaken anyone. But we need to depend on him. We need to look up to him. So, even though it is not purposed, because I now change this to next week, the front of your bulletin where it says, lift up your eyes to God, that's what we need to do. As we awaken ourselves to Jesus Christ in our lives, as, as we allow God to awake us, and to be alive in him, we need to lift up our eyes. But I think too many of us are still living like we have no hope. 
Philippians 3.14 tells us, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. That's the bullseye, guys. The bullseye is to live like Christ and to glorify him and God in all we do. To look forward to the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. A lot of us are still living in a way which does not look like we're awake at all. Let alone awakened by God. We walk around each and every single day, each week, and people don't really see God in us. They don't see that we're awake, that we're alive. They see us just moseying around life. We're living in a day and age where people need to see Jesus. Now, this I'm talking to men right here. We live in a day also where men need to be men of God. Where men need to be teaching boys to be brought up and to act like men. And to act like men of God. So I got some statistics for you, which I think are just baffling. And I gave this to the men yesterday at the retreat, and I'll give it to you guys today. But it's not just for men. These are focused on men, but it just talks about a family and how families need God in their lives. Listen up. Here are some baffling statistics. Again, if somebody's sleeping beside you, wake them up. I don't see anybody, but they need to hear this. 43% of U.S. children live without their father. 63% of youth suicides are from fatherless homes. 63% of youth committing suicide are from fatherless homes. 90% of all homeless children are from homes without a father. 90%. 85% of all children who show behavior disorders come from fatherless homes. 80% of rapists with anger problems come from fatherless homes. 71% of all high school dropouts come from fatherless homes. 70% of youth in state-operated institutions come from fatherless homes. And listen to this one. 85% of all youth in prison come from fatherless homes. Now, I I have the sources here. Some of these are from the Center of Disease Control, Justice and Behavior Department, National Principles Association, U.S. Department of Justice. These aren't just things that I made up. Yes, I found it on the internet, so somebody else could have made it up. But these are baffling. 85% of all youth in prison come from fatherless homes. 63% of youth committing suicide today are from fatherless homes. Unfortunately, a good percentage of those households which do have male influence in them the males are either having a bad influence or they're not stepping up to be the men of God that we're really created to be. So, like I said, that is focused on men. But I think it goes both directions. Men and women and children, we all need to be children of God. We all need to be living in His ways. We all need to be waking the dead, whether that's inside of us or around us in the world. So the question is why? Why do we not do this? We know that the best way to live is in God's ways. So I think it's two things. I think one, it's Satan. Satan being the deceiver that he is, being the warring lion that he is, walking around the world looking to devour us and sending his supernatural forces to destroy us. He knows how to get us. He knows how to get us to look at our past mistakes or current mistakes. He knows how to brainwash us and tell us, you're not good enough. You're too weak. 
You don't know God's word well enough, whatever it is. But I think the second part, and let me just remind you, God doesn't want us focusing on all those bad things. Because we need to focus on him and knowing that we are good enough as long as we're serving him. Because he is the greatness. He is our wisdom. He is our strength. He is our refuge. He is our shield. He gives us all we need. But secondly, I think part of this is because we do not fully grasp onto his power to awaken the dead. So I'm going to read John 11 to you. As I just thought this would be a great example to show you the resurrection of Lazarus. Let me read this. John 11. And you don't have to stand. You don't have to turn if you don't want to. You can just listen. Now a certain man was ill. Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Again, pay attention to certain powerful statements here. He whom you love is ill. Now, Jesus loves all his people, but he had a close connection with Lazarus. But when Jesus heard it, he said, The illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. That doesn't sound like love, we would think, right? We want to think that if we hear somebody sick, we hear something's wrong, we need to leave immediately. But no, here it tells us, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. That's because he knew the plan. He knew the purpose. He knew that he had power to heal him, but that wasn't what he wanted to do. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. Again, the power of death does not strike our Lord, our God, our Savior. To him, this is just being asleep. He knew that he would be awakened, but the disciples, they didn't understand. In verse 12, it says, The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go that he may die that we may die with him. They thought Jesus was going to die here going back. Verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would, have wouldn't, would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. 
Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall not die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are in Christ. You are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had came, come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in the spirit and greatly troubled. And see, and, and he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on the account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. This is one of my favorite stories from life of Jesus. There's just so much stuff in this, this story that we could analyze. We could look to verse by verse and we could really pick out. And we don't have time for all that. But here's what I want you to see and why I shared the whole story with you. Jesus had the power to awaken this man from the dead. And this man wasn't just on his deathbed. He wasn't just sick. He hadn't just died. This man was dead. We're talking several days dead, four days dead, so far off dead that they were actually afraid to open the tomb. Can you picture that? Here's this man, here's this, here's this Jesus telling these people to open the tomb, and they actually kind of spoke back to him as they basically said, Lord, are you sure? Lord, do you know what you're doing? They're thinking this man's been dead for four days. He said, Lord, by this time there will be an odor. For he has been dead four days. Again, four days. They had already began visitations for the family to console her off of Lazarus' death. But Jesus did this. And Jesus wasn't stressed about it all. This was nothing for Jesus. Nothing for God. Because Jesus can wake the dead. He was not stressed. He did weep. But he wept for a different reason than Mary and Martha. You see, I think that he wept for a fallen world. He wept having to see the grief that they were having to go, to go through, the death 
Because that was never their desire for us, never God's desire for us. God desires us to all to have life and to be able to live for all eternity with him, to have a relationship with him. We brought death upon ourselves, but Jesus, Jesus had the power to conquer death. And that goes to his life as well. And we can be alive in him because of this. So here's the thing. Don't you think, and this is only one example, don't you think that if Jesus has the power to awaken the dead, he can also be alive in you. He can wake you up. He can give you life. He can give you purpose. He can give you joy. To save yourself, to save your friends, to save your family, to save your neighbors, of course he can. He can save all of us. If Jesus can raise a man from the dead, he can surely give you spiritual life and awaken the spirit inside of you to do great things. Jesus wept, but not for the same reason as the sisters, as Mary and Martha. You know, I, I heard another great explanation to this. It actually came from my brother, from a college professor. He said he had a college professor that also said that he believed Jesus wept because he was having to bring Lazarus back to this life, away from being in the presence of God. That's deep. To think that he had already gone to be in the presence of God, and now he's, or at the very least, he's already gone, and Jesus was having to bring him back to this fallen world, a life full of pain and suffering and sin. Mary and Martha also wept and cried out to Jesus, if only you were here. But I don't think this was to rebuke him. This was an illustration of his power. Because you see, Jesus had all the power to heal him wherever he was. But this was for the glory of the Son. To show his power, his deity, his godliness. In Luke 8, a woman touched the edge of his robe or cloak and was healed. In John 4, Jesus healed the official son without seeing him. In Luke 7, the centurion's servant is healed without going to be with him. Jesus has the power to heal. Jesus has the power to save. Jesus has the power to awaken the dead. All of this for his glory. All of this to testify to his deity, his power, his godliness. And with all this power to raise the dead, he can also wake us. He can make us alive again. He can equip us to do good work, to do good things. So back to Ephesians 2. As we read Ephesians 2... Let me read this to you again. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive in Christ. Let me skip forward to verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So again, two reminders we were dead, but we are now made alive. There's differences there. There's the before and after, the dead and alive, and we should not continue to live like the dead. 
We shouldn't continue to dance with a life of sin. We shouldn't continue to dance with worldly pleasures which take us away from God's way of living. Matthew 6, 24 says, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Now this goes on to talk about a love for money. But it's still a great illustration that we can't be devoted to the world and to God. We must make a choice to be fully committed to God. To be alive in Him. To walk in His ways. Because verse, uh, the verse 10 in Ephesians 2 says that we were created in Christ Jesus for good works. And to walk in them. Are you living and walking in God's ways? Or are we still trying to make our own way? Are we truly awake, alive, in a world that is dead? Or are you still dancing and living according to the world and their ways, thinking that we need to put on a show, thinking that we need to fit in, because we weren't created to fit in. We were created to be different. We were created to show this dying world that they can be alive. So I have some points for you to remember. The takeaway, as some would said, say, Number one, God can give you life. Do you have the free eternal life which only God can give? Number two, God can awaken the spirit inside of you to do great things. What do you want to do? Number three, God can use you to wake the dead all around you. We need to quit allowing Satan to speak into our lives and tell us we're not good enough. Because it's not about us, it's about God. And God is more than enough. For all of us. Now you'll notice there's three points. We're really just this. God will give you life and he will awaken the spirit inside of us to do great things. God gives us the spirit, the helper, when we accept him as our Lord and Savior. We're not alone. We're awakened. We're alive. And as we close, I want to read this to you from Ephesians 5, 8 to 14. For at one time you were darkness. But now you are light in the Lord. So walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Expose them. Be the light in a dying world. Be alive in a dying world and show them the truth. Show them the light. Show them the hope and the way to life through Jesus Christ. Verse 11, it says, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead. And Christ will shine on you. Yesterday's retreat, the theme was called MAD, Make a Difference. And that was my challenge to them and my challenge to you today as well. Make a difference. We talked about statistics of fatherless homes, homes without God in them. We talked about just being alive in Christ. How are we going to make a difference by living as alive in Christ's people? To make a difference for the kingdom of God and to glorify him, to be purged.